Hello and welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious and in this episode I'm talking to two artists about feedback and criticism. Every artist making work and putting it out there into the world is inviting opinion of some kind, be that from their immediate collaborators, their performers, the raised eyebrow of a parent or mentor, their audience or their critics. Feedback is so useful to the artistic process, but it's hard to take at times and perhaps also hard to give. So in this episode, I'm going to talk to two artists to find out a bit more about the art of critique, its relevance and how we can, perhaps as an industry, do it better. Our guests today have a foot in both camps, working as artists, but also as published journalists. Isaac Oro now is a multidisciplinary artist. In dance, he's performed in body politics, Father Figurine, and was a voiceover artist for Far From The Norm's Black Dog. He also writes poetry, features and reviews for a variety of publications. And Donald Hutera, who for many years has been a dance critic for The Times, amongst many other publications. But lately, he's become a curator, maker and performer, most recently working with Rhiannon Faith on Drowntown. Welcome, both of you. Hi. So tell us just a little bit about yourselves and how you came to be in the world of theatre and journalism. Isaac, do you fancy kicking us off? Sure thing. So I've been trained in various street styles from hip hop to breaking house for, I think, about 13 years and usually that was in the commercial scene. And the first theatre work that I saw that had a, wow, I really want to do this moment was choreography by Lee Griffiths, who is actually the producer of Far From The Norm, but she was a choreographer at the time and she made a work at the place called Behind Every Woman. And yeah, that's how I got into theatre in that sense. And in terms of writing, I studied journalism, graduated in multimedia journalism and have always had an interest in writing about dance. So I have wrote several blogs, my own independent reviews, and then just gradually and gradually ended up writing more and more in different spaces. So the two kind of met, but they've been isolated for a long time. That's my journey in a nutshell. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> Coming together in a way at the moment. And Donald, how about you? Well, I've always been, since childhood, an innately creative individual, I like to think. Um, I dropped out of high school when I was 16. I just didn't fit in. Maybe that was a sign of something or other. But when I was 20, I spotted that a local alternative newspaper in Minneapolis, a weekly, was advertising for crits, for film. And that was my first love. This was the era of typewriters. Dinosaurs were roaming the earth, et cetera, et cetera. I'd never even used a typewriter before, but I applied. I didn't even know about double spacing with a typewriter. <laughs> And I got the job. I got the job. And I think one of the reasons, they must have seen some glimmer or fizz. I know what I submitted was probably terribly pretentious and verbose and all of that sort of stuff. But some little talent must have been visible, I'm liking to think. So I did that. And at the same time, I started, uh, I was pursuing an acting career, which got me into a bit of hot water back then, because people, I think, more so in the late 70s than now, wanted you to be in your little box more. I mean, ideally, part of 2021 is let's bash down and break out of those boxes. Yeah. So anyway, I worked as an actor and I was writing film criticism, but that wasn't enough for me. I did anything and everything for whoever would take it, including restaurant reviews with no budget. And I would go say, hey, can you feed me? And I'll write something about your restaurant. And they did. And, and it was also about developing the people skills to do an interview and knowing how to talk to people because everybody's got a story. And I was always, always interested in what those stories were. And I'm still, the thing that's kept me in the game for uh, 44 years is uh, curiosity. 
It doesn't kill the cat. It enables the cat to have many lives. <laughs> I love that. And then for many, many years, I, I moved to the UK, you know, cutting long stories short, moved to the UK, pursued the word, uh, was trying to figure out how to be the best responder, writer, critic, whatever it were. I, I'm not a big fan of the word critic, but, mm. you know, I always think I'm giving a response to something that somebody else has created. But that certainly in later times and even pre-COVID, as things have shifted for me, you know, I'm 64 years old and I want to perform and make and get all this other stuff. I've had a great education, a kind of college on the go, learning and learning and learning from all the people I've met and spoken to and all the work I've seen and figuring it out and and I want to do. And I've been doing that throughout, you know, the decades doing bits of acting and curating and mentoring and dramaturgy. And it's just, it's been hiked up. I'm really avid and hungry for those creative, performative, and, you know, any other opportunities that arise. I'm open, open and available <laughs> for that. So, Given that this is going to be so much about language and what you do is about language as well as movement, let's sort some language out right at the beginning. Critique, review and feedback. Is there a difference, do you think? And what is that difference? And should we just unpick that a little bit before we delve in? Because in my introduction, I kind of bounced around those three things, really. Isaac, do you have a feeling about that? Um, I think the lines have been blurred more and more as online blogging and journalism has become a thing because I think anyone and everyone can have an opinion, which is, I think, inherently a good thing. I think feedback tends to be requested more and in my eyes it tends to be one-on-one -on -one. so an artist might ask for feedback for example but the purpose of that feedback will probably be feed more into the progress of the work whereas the review kind of looks at it in a post sense so once the work is done the review is more telling the audience about the work so i think it's less about the conversation between the artist and the person writing or giving that feedback. Where criticism comes in for me, I think, is the writer placing their opinion at the centre of the work. Whereas I feel like a review, you tend to write in a general way for everyone to kind of gain access or understand what the work is. So I guess in terms of similarities, I'd see feedback and criticism to be quite similar, but feedback serves a different purpose. That's for the artist's ears and eyes only, whereas I think criticism is for everyone to see what the writer thinks. And I think that's probably why, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, it causes a lot of issues and also positive things because that person's opinion might be placed on a pedestal or might be ignored depending on who and how and where they write it. But anyway, that's how I've come to understand those things. Mm. And I like that uh, having a conversation with somebody, giving it to the artist or feedback seems more mm. informal, more relaxed. It's not for public consumption, whereas reviews and critiques usually are. I suppose the reason I shy away from the word critic is uh, what's so interesting the, the way you've talked about how the critic is at the center mm. of a critique and may not be at a review. I sort of think of a review as rather a consumer guide mm. possible, possibly consumer guide. Critique just because it's a tonier word, might be more analytical, more academic. And by the way, I'm not at all academic. I, you know, I have no academic background whatsoever. So critique seems more in-depth, and you might have greater length to write and expand and expound than you would mm. in a review. But that whole thing, Isaac, about being... Because there is no such thing as objectivity in writing. Absolutely. We can only write from our own viewpoint, blah, blah, blah. I always hammer on about that. Oh, and Max Wyman, I love this quote so much. He was born in Britain, but moved to Canada. He said that all criticism is autobiography. And I think that's a really beautiful and true thing. It took me, however, many years 
many, many years before I even used the word I mm. in a review. I don't remember which review it was, but I remember it was like, I'm going to say I in this review. Not that that made a vast difference, but I was in a different place by that time where I could own and claim. Not that I didn't own and claim, but a crit, a writer, we are regarded as figures of authority. We are meant to be somewhat authoritative, but I've always felt I'm asking myself questions when I see work. I want to pose questions for whoever's going to read my responses. It's not a finished, fixed deal. As much as one can have a strong yeah. opinion, it's about opening up a dialogue yeah. always for me, I think, at heart with whoever's reading it or whoever's receiving what I have to say. I want that dialogue. That's really interesting. That thing that you said, Isaac, about feedback and permission. We'll get onto that a bit later as well, I think. I think that's what I was reading into it. And what you said then, Donald, about own that opinion and as you say it being objective and understanding that this is just one opinion and and actually we might get into that as well as to whose opinion matters you referred to that earlier Isaac I think <laughs> so the subject of feedback has come up for us actually on this podcast and we're now in series four so it's come up a couple of times and I think particularly over this last year because much of the work artists have been putting out has been digital. And there's been a little bit of a feeling that they've missed that immediate feedback, if you like, from audience reaction. So when you put something out digitally, okay, sometimes you do get feedback in, you know, Twitter responses and all that kind of gums. Or chat rooms if somebody's watching. Or chat rooms, yeah, yeah. But in terms of that kind of intake of breath or applause of knowing whether something's landed properly, you know, all that kind of stuff. The artists that we've been speaking to have been feeling a little bit as if they've been missing that. And I wondered, talking to you both now in your roles as artists, how much do you feel you need feedback and from whom do you need it? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, and as always, it's quite subjective. I've always operated in a feedback in a controlled sense, as in, I think every artist is sensitive to their work. And depending on how sensitive they may be, it depends what feedback is necessary, what's inherently known and what is unknown. So I might make something personally and think I'm not so sure about that. And I think in that moment, I might need someone else's fresh eyes to come in and, and comment and, you know, help guide that process. So I think feedback for me is only necessary when I'm not sure, right? There is an unknown. And I think recognising and being humble enough that there are other people out there with enough expertise to help that process is quite important. But I think on the flip side as well, how much artists are confident in their own work. It might sound arrogant, but I don't need feedback in this sense or I don't need feedback in that sense because you're making the work for a reason. You know what you want to do in a sense. So from whom in terms of feedback, I think, again, being humble enough to recognise there are artists who have been doing it longer than you. There are artists out there who have other experiences and I think it's always important to incorporate not just dance experience in your feedback. For me anyway, I always look for other artistic forms that might influence or have different perspectives or it's visual art or music or painting or painters or whatever. There is a breadth of information out there that I think a lot of people can offer into that space. On the question of feeling isolated and not getting that face-to-face -face reaction even with like live streams and Zoom or whatever, there still will be that missing link. And I'm not sure there is a solution to get around that, but to return to a space because the work is for an audience, regardless how much we make, because we want to express ourselves. The work is not the work without an audience, without it having that reaction, without the conversations after. 
So I, I'm not sure that... Yeah, there's something about that atmosphere, yeah. isn't there? Even if it is a digital piece of content, but that kind of atmosphere, what did the room feel like? What are the conversations afterwards? What are the questions people are asking? All of that, I'm sure, is feeding the artists as well as the audience, isn't it? Yeah. And I've only felt that that's been replicated when there's been like open forums after the work and after let's say you have a live stream session where you just talk and you open the space for everyone and anyone to comment and I think that's probably the closest I've seen it but even that is not the same and I think it's okay to acknowledge it's not the same yeah yeah definitely so many things have arisen if I could jump in Melanie I'm thinking back to a really key moment somewhere in Canary Wharf the Spanish maker artist La Robot did a piece many years ago that I don't think I was reviewing it, but there were several of us crits from the you know, establishment there. And I remember one of my colleagues sidling up to me and sort of going, oh, God, this isn't so good, is it? And I was quite open to it. And the audience was allowed to move about and be on two levels, blah, blah, blah. Interesting piece. What I really loved, though, what I took away is afterwards, they asked whoever wanted to stay, ordinary people, not people in the know, real people. They asked for feedback. And so many people had things to say and wanted to know. And it was such a tonic reminder that I cannot be in the ivory tower of my own opinion, that it is about, and I think this is what's kept me going for all these years, is that triangular relationship between people who make work, people who watch it professionally, whatever that may mean, and the public. And we all want and need things from each other. You know, I don't necessarily profess to know always what those things are, but that triangular give and take Another point is, I think a lot of the time, you know, many people, I'm one of them, I want to be liked, I want to be understood, I want to be loved, I want, you know, I'd like that. And it's not always going to happen. And I know that I did a piece with H2 dance in Spring Loaded at the place, really happy to do that. It was very much an audience interactive piece and the audience was given notepads and pens under their seats and they could write anything that they wanted to during the show, any comments, <laughs> they didn't get to take them away, but I wanted to read them. That was I was soliciting feedback and one person wrote, you guys are geniuses. Another person singled me out. I was a sort of host to this thing, a kind of performative interactive host person. They found me nauseating. And I found that really fascinating because I, I didn't intend to be nauseating. I can't control that. So I jokingly say, I'm a nauseating genius. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, ha having performed last week at Ducky with Posh Club Dance Club, you know, we fed off what the crowd was giving us and they were whooping along and it was absolutely energizing and wonderful to be in that room with living people. On the other hand, with Rhiannon, because Drowntown has never yet been premiered to the public, we did a prequel to it called Drowntown Lockdown and then we filmed, the full length stage show was filmed and I knew that I was going to learn something from it anyway and have to adapt to film. And it turns out, and maybe it's because I started as a film critic, I love movies, I really love the camera. I hope the camera loves me. I can't answer that. But I love the possibilities of intimacy and whatnot. And just one bit of feedback about Drowntown Lockdown, which was shot with a borrowed phone in my flat. We were all in isolation in June 2020. Somebody wrote, because it did get reviewed here and there on websites and things, they compared my performance to Baby Jane, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane. Now, I wasn't drawing on Betty Davis or Joan Crawford, but it fascinated me that something that I had not planned or thought about, some reference that some, because we're all bringing references to what we see. Somebody had her baby Jane reference and saw it in my performance. 
for camera. So, you know, it's a little, little detail like that. It's like, oh gosh, well, that's kind of fun. You know, it just has the negativity of nauseating. I think I took it on the chin. It didn't bother me. Again, I found it fascinating or, you know, this can be instructive. The kind of feedback can be very, very instructive about how to continue, you know, what habits to draw up, whether you've realized and articulated an idea and expressed it, whatever form. So I welcome feedback. So you welcome it. And what do you think, given that example you've given us of the nauseating genius, what protocols do you feel need to be in place for feedback to be constructive and helpful? And I suppose saying the word feedback in this instance, I might be talking about that feedback that we've asked permission for, but perhaps also in terms of reviews when you haven't necessarily been asked for that. But do you think about that as you're writing out what's going to be helpful for somebody reading this? Donna, what would you say? Well, I strive to be honest and fair. And I don't want to be a meanie. I, I don't want to be put on that pedestal, Isaac. And I also don't want to be like, get the garlic out. He's walking into the room or that kind of stuff. Interesting, the, the vampire analogy for being a critic. We'll park that for a moment. No, I, I want to be honest and fair and respectful. I think it's because I've been on the other side as a performer on the receiving end that I have some awareness about the word used, sensitive. Artists are sensitive. I want to be sensitive to their sensitivities, but I also need to still own and claim that opinion. It's a kind of, well, that's my job. Yeah. I don't know if it's my right, but it's my job to do that. But I want to do it responsibly. And I have to trust that I have enough integrity to fulfill that job, that task responsibly. Mm. And what would you say to that, Isaac? I think that's a really good point. It's, it's your job, it's what you're being paid to do, and you're trying to do it responsibly. What would you say? I, th I think the responsibility thing is quite important. And in my eyes, what tends to be missing from these sort of conversations and questions is the idea of knowledge. So not to claim that everyone's an expert, but I would not be writing a review about ballet because, again, borrowing from your triangle, Donald, watching as a professional, there is an expectation to write professionally in the sense of you know the technique, you know its intentions when it's used, you inherently have a connection to what themes and what emotions and what purpose it's trying to draw out. I would not be doing that because, again, I have the responsibility to be, as, as you've said, fair and open, but also humble. I don't have that expertise or I don't have that level of knowledge. What I do know inherently are things to do with, let's say, contemporary or hip-hop. And I think when you offer criticism and you're, as I've said, at the centre of that critique, meaning your opinion is being held in some high regard, I think you do have that responsibility to be fair in all aspects. And I think that is also being fair in your own opinion. And I think it's not to do with self-editing, but it's to do with, or self-censoring, is to do with what would be the repercussions of my words, for example, if I claim someone's done a technique wrong and I end up being, you know, wrong. Or I even ignore, and this is another thing, I've read several reviews where someone has completely omitted the idea that it's a dance work because you could feel they're reluctant to comment on technique or movement. So you read the review and it feels like it's just a nice description of the work. But or, only perhaps you know, one section of it because they've missed a chunk out. Exactly. And I think you can, and maybe it's because I'm sensitive to words, you can tell when something's being omitted and something is being written around. And that tends to be the case in terms of culture, in terms of race, in terms of technique. Mm. And I think what I myself as a reviewer and as a critic, even though I agree with Donald, I tend to steer away from that word. I tend to be humble and responsible and aware enough to be, you know, 
how much can I write and how much do I propose in terms of understanding the work for what it's intending to do in its entirety and if I can't again in that triangle as a professional watching this work and seeing it in its entirety then I'm not writing a criticism I can just tweet I really enjoyed this or I didn't understand this or I like this but if I'm approaching that with that level of responsibility and integrity then I need to see the work and understand it in its entirety what it's trying to do and then offer my thoughts in relation to what that artist is wanting to do. I love that you said knowledge because that's also about context. And Isaac, by the way, I would welcome you writing a ballet review because you would bring fresh eyes to what you're seeing. A couple of key things about expertise or perceived expertise. I'm very grateful, even now, 30 some years later, to Shobhana Jayasinghe. She happened to live near me, you know, 35 years ago or so. And I was being asked to write about South Asian dance. And she was my guru for an afternoon over tea. And I had a tutorial in her flat. And it was a real grounding. And another example is British Council asked me to write the 500-word definitive piece on hip-hop dance theater, and this was before breaking convention and whatnot. I happened to be in Manchester, and I had Kwesi Johnson, Benji Reed, John Z. D., and Robert Hilton. Uh, granted, only men. We'll park that for a moment. There were four experts, and it was essentially a roundtable. It's like, guys, tell me, what do you know? That was the best way for me to be able and doing some research, of course, on my own, to be able to claim to have some knowledge. It's not complete. It's not that of an expert. It's, you know, that's why I say perceived expert or authoritative voice. But using that authoritative voice responsibly, again, is the key thing. And I remember going to many, many years ago to some kind of traditional stroke contemporary African dance performance. I don't remember what. And I was feeling a bit nervous because I didn't know the form. I didn't know the technique that well. But I knew what I had to do as a reviewer for the Times, but just as a person, I had to look and really see what they were doing and find the best language to convey that and ask myself what I felt, what I saw, what I thought, which is sort of what it is. You know, you you sponge all that up and then you squeeze the sponge beautifully, the droplets, and you construct your review out of that. And yeah, I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to capture and convey its essence and what it produced in me as well as yeah. I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So I know that's one of the things that Equity, one of the recommendations that they had, which is considering whether you are the right person to review or, you know, feedback or tell or interpret a story. But I like that thinking that you have, Donald, as well about constructing that knowledge, building that knowledge around you and then putting back into the world your interpretation. Could I just add to that just quickly? And I think what the expectation is at this moment, I think what is expected is that level of research, that level of communication, whether it's interviewing with those who do know or researching works from those in those spaces. I think that's expected at all times. And I think where issues come across is when it's been done elsewhere and it hasn't right. been done in another space. And I'm sure we're going to also talk about how much research and time is put towards reviews and criticism because it tends to yes. be quite quick turnaround. But regardless, I think when it's obvious someone can do it and they don't because of other restrictions, it can form a bit of a barrier and a bit of an issue in terms of what the review yeah. then comes out to be. But that's just to say, I, I do agree with that. I think there is a responsibility to, to, if you don't inherently know, then, you know, as a journalist, you do research and you do put that information together to try and convey as much as you can. And jumping in there, Isaac, what would you say about that timeline then in terms of the turnaround? Because I'm going to get onto this a little bit later about how that world, how that newspaper in particular world has changed. But what are your feelings then? It felt like that's the question you'd like to be asked. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, not necessarily, but um, I, I think 
again, if it's a review that is communicating to audiences about the work generally, then quick turnaround, there's no issue with that. I think in terms of the in-depth work, the expectation isn't always carried out. And again, I've observed that and maybe it's because I'm operating from a niche space, so I can inherently see when things are admitted or not, but how hip-hop dance theatre is covered, for example, or how African contemporary dance is there is sometimes, what's the word, priority being placed on other works. And I think when you deprioritize something, you put less resources towards it and you might not have the time of speaking to the industry experts like Donald did in that instance. And you can quite clearly see the outcome of that review or that criticism is empty in its in-depth analysis. Yeah. And I think that's where I have the issue, where things are quite clearly deprioritized yeah. But you can see from the reviewer or the writer or the platform or the publication that those journalists have the ability, they have the integrity, they have the responsibility, and they've done it time and time and time and time again. But that tends to exist in, let's say, different types of work, whether it's contemporary or ballet. But I think more and more those resources are being shifted towards more niche yeah. styles because those niche styles aren't niche anymore. They're becoming more and more and more mainstream. Yeah. So, you know, by, by consequence, you're going to have to put more resources towards that. But that's pretty much where I've been in terms of seeing the capabilities and not the outcome. And would you say, kind of moving that point into this next question, that any work that's made and put out into the public is ripe for review or do you feel that artists should be allowed to invite a published or, or perhaps more importantly refuse a published criticism, critique, review, whatever terminology would like, <laughs> which is complex, I think. It's very complex. I don't know what side of the fence I sit on, but I ask you because we were talking to one of our guests who'd mentioned that a friend of hers during lockdown had been reviewed and she'd been making a work in progress and she didn't know she wasn't ready. She hadn't actively invited that critic in. And on the other hand, you'll get somebody that would be absolutely thrilled that a critic, given those resources, as you say, that are limited and quite finite, particularly around the published and paid role that Donald's been talking about. I think that's been dwindling, that they've come along to the piece and they get a little bit of airtime within that publication. Donald, what do you think about that? Well, I'm surprised that somebody who's got a work in progress showing that that was allowed to happen. Now, maybe it's because I'm used to the gatekeeping that PR people (laughs) do. And I really love PR people. I'm not at all anti-PR because I wouldn't know a lot of stuff. And I have great relationships. And it's so nice that in dance, this is, hey, let's hear it for all dance PRs, not just (laughs) dance PRs. But I'm really, truly, you know, I have great pools of affection for the people who are swimming along with me Mm -hmm. in this industry. So part of this, though, it's about structures. For me, as a freelancer, in a way, I don't want to say no. I need the money and It's not just about the money. I want the challenge, the education, call it what you will, of seeing everything and anything. And I could, I trust this is my, you know, a possible strong suit. I can go to the Royal Ballet and I can handle that. Although I do sometimes feel like a bit of an imposter because that's not my first love or the field that I grew up in. I'm much more of a funky, experimental, live art, blah, blah, blah person. But I can also, you know, I have a great feeling for community dance and community dance, which can be great art, And you know what? It can be bad art. I don't want to say bad, but it cannot work. And you need to say that because it's all creative expression and it's there to be received and however it's going to be received. But with this idea of, you know, inviting or not inviting or basically you're saying banning certain critics, which I know has probably happened. I don't know that it's happened to me. I don't know that I've ever been banned. There might be somebody who wants me banned now, but let's park that one too for a while. Uh, I don't know if I've answered that. 
Have I answered that? I've sort of danced around it. You've danced around it and I've, I've been enjoying the dance. How about you, Isaac? <laughs> Where would you join Donald on the dance? That <laughs> in terms of inviting and choosing not to, I mean, it's, it's... I wonder whether as an artist that's putting work out into the world, do you, a bit like, you know, when you put something on Facebook, you sort of relinquish ownership of it, don't you? It's out there in the world. Is that how you feel? Or should there be a protected space? Where... Yeah, it, it, it is complicated. And I think the line of defence, as Donald has pointed out, is the PR. There are invited people from different publications sometimes because of the experience and history of certain writers you would want them in that space because you think your work could be best in terms of they're sensitive in their writing they they cater to maybe your style your technique or the themes you're working with or they're fair and responsible in whoever and whatever they write so there is a level of safety and again i return to the idea that all artists are sensitive by nature so imagine you know that this is a metaphor we use a lot you know it's your baby you're putting your baby out into the world so whose hands are the safest to put them in and i think where it's hard to choose one side or the other is yes you've made a work and it's out in the public space, so everyone has access to it, whilst also acknowledging that, yes, it's yours, it's your creation, so there is still a level of ownership towards it. And I think the structure is already there in terms of PR, but when you don't have that, you tend to be your own PR person. And I think where we don't analyse why certain artists might say, I don't want this person to come, or I want that person specifically to come, is we're still viewing them in that lens because as artists, we've all had to embody different roles all at once. Maybe you're self-producing and you are your own last line of defense in terms of protecting your work and not being dismantled too quickly or too soon. And I think that's also something that we can work at in understanding that, yeah, a reviewer might do that, but it's in your best interest or you would expect your best interest and their best interest because it's their job as we've established several times. So I think trying to reframe this question and I guess I'm doing a bit of a dance as well, trying to reframe this question in is the artist independent? Are they having to make that decision alone or is there an agency or a PR which sees the best interest of the work and thinks that reviewer is not right for it because Maybe there's a lack of knowledge, there's a lack of responsibility or sensitivity or whatever. But I think the idea of choice can't be removed completely. That's why we'll always pretty much see pros and cons of each side. But I think yeah. if we reframe and see the question is, in is it an organisation doing this banning? Then I guess that becomes a bit more problematic in my eyes if an independent is doing it because there are several hurdles, barriers for independent artists before yeah. the inequalities are examined. Race, yeah. gender, disability, etc. are examined. So I think it's important to also view that. So that's a long-winded answer in saying, I think both sides merit examining. But personally, I think the choice should always be with the artist organisation because the infrastructure is already there in terms of PR choosing yeah. who can come or who isn't invited. Yeah. There's also a great difference in the career trajectory that I've taken where I was writing for, you know, I still am, freelance, mainstream publication, The Times, blah, blah, blah. I've also written for a lot of smaller organizations or organs and websites. And I used to say, and I still, well, do I believe this? I don't know. My phrase was, the rise of the democratization of opinion has seriously undermined paid expertise. <laughs> Blah, blah, blah. But I'll give you an example of within a couple of weeks of each other, there was a meeting of independent bloggers and writers. Lynn Gardner was there and Maddie Costa was there. It was a round table. It was really lovely. It was another experience that kind of shifted my perspective because everybody 
was allowed to come to the table and have their say. It was so beautifully inclusive. I then went to something that, and I'm not knocking them, that the Critics Circle organized. And we were all in rows. The panel of experts were the only ones who got to talk. They were at the front of the room. It was mainly men. That We'll park that too. But just the difference between that establishment gathering, which of course had some really nice wine and canapes, whereas I think we had bottles of juice brought up to the library meeting room that we were in for the uh, independent. That disparity between those two groups was eye-opening. And so that's a roundabout way of saying that sometimes coverage will depend on where it's going to be placed. I know as the PR for Taiwan season, this is the sixth year I'm doing it in Edinburgh. It's a showcase platform for Taiwanese work. We, I'm speaking on behalf of Taiwan Season, we welcome anybody who wants to write anything. Now, between us and the world, I think some of the writing that's arisen from that, you know, it's okay. It's not necessarily the greatest criticism or response, but it's publicity. And so it won't necessarily be in depth or it won't be aesthetically the most beautiful, but it says, I saw this work and this is what it is. And that has its values economically as well. Absolutely. It's a case by case thing, isn't it? Mm. On the other hand, as we move forward to whatever we're moving forward, or we continue along, we need to continue asking the questions about who it is and what it's for. That's why we're mm. having this talk right now. Yeah, I know. It's very interesting. And I do often think about how vulnerable artists are. I know it's their job. I know they choose to make work and put it out there. But Every time they do, my hat comes off to them because of this very thing. You've got to have a thick skin, haven't you? Because as you said, Isaac, it is your baby. You've put something out there that you love and you've nurtured and you care for, and it reflects something that's burning inside of you and various other you know, reasons for making work. Something that you've just said there, Donald, makes me think about the future of this. You've talked about the establishment a couple of times, and I like now that I understand a bit more what the establishment's is it's it's paid writers that get given wine <laughs> I don't know, but you're powerful aren't you the pen wields power and we've talked about the responsibility that comes with that. that that's the word i prefer responsibility i don't like power yeah i get that but i think about this in different industries to dance actually i would say that a critic of film has the power to make a, a flop or a success because if you read that review that film's on for a long run in your local cinema if you read the review and it's bad you might choose to put your pounds somewhere else but in dance does that happen quite so much and what is the purpose and how powerful are those critics and what they say in an audience's response to work in our sector and I'm thinking to myself here that there are shorter runs and the whole thing is different and I think you said Isaac before about reviews are often past tense you don't have a chance to go and see that thing you're just reading about it so what is the purpose of all of this and what's the future for dance criticism at the moment? How relevant is dance criticism to artists today? Um, It's documentation. Even if something is after the fact, it becomes part of history, if anybody can find it or if it's archived. And that's useful. Just as one example, I forget what they were called, the collective of independent makers who had a website for a while. Eleanor Sikorsky was involved, and I just can't remember who else was on that team. But there was a show that I didn't see, and one of them wrote about it really beautifully and well, and it was the nearest I could get to having seen that work. So I was glad that she had taken the time to go there and write those words to document her experience. 
it meant something to me. So there's the historical perspective. In the immediate, wouldn't you say, Isaac, a review, a critique, it has the potential to shift tickets, put bums on seats. Whoever happens to read it, if they're a producer, presenter, programmer, they might come along and see something. So that is where the influence can come in and where, as a writer, I know I am part of that progress of influence. And the way I sort of conduct my business is I'm a very chatty, friendly person, I like to think. And I've helped to get people jobs. I've greased the wheels or I've simply informed people. And I'm doing that more now on internet. Just like, oh, hey, do you know that such and such is looking for people right now? I do a lot of that and I enjoy it. You know, maybe that's on some weird level, it's self-serving. It's like, God, what a good guy I am. But I really do like hearing that other people got hired I mean, apparently the relationship with Kathy Marston that, that she has with Northern Ballet is because I kept on going up to David Nixon, the artistic director, and say, hey, do you know Kathy Marston? And I'm so pleased that I was able to be the bridge across which they met. I want to give back because I get so much back. Now, that doesn't quite answer your question about where are we going. So I'm going to toss the ball to you, Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> Take hold of the future. Take hold of the future. It's interesting, though, that your perception of and what you're really proud of there is actually nothing to do with what we might think your role is. It's the extra bit that you've built around it. Isaac, catch that ball. Tell us what you yeah, think. Yeah, um, a lot of things were said there. <laughs> I know. Um, I think, first, the, the purpose of reviewing and writing and criticism is always, and I think we tend to forget this, or maybe just put it aside, is conversation with audiences. There is no work without the audience, and I think what writers are are that bridge sometimes not all the time sometimes and i think where the issue might come is depending on power it might be assumed that they're the only bridge but there are several things and i think social media has done a lot of that um just on an aside i'm seeing a lot of pr and promotion from far from the norm who are actually using audience tweets with writers with reviewing and i think that equilibrium of power is probably what we're going to see a lot more of in the future Whereas I think there is a push to divest power from individuals who can make or break a work. And I personally don't think there is that level of power that exists, but I think it would be naive of me to think it probably doesn't in certain pockets. The ability to influence work or to influence where it's seen or where it's shown, etc. Bombs on seats. Seats on bombs? <laughs> bombs on seats, etc. But I think what we're probably going to see a lot more is that level of power being divested. So audience members, those are the people we want to make the work for, and I think their opinions are starting to and have always mattered as much as those with more analytic viewpoint of the work, let's say, like professional view of the work. I just want to jump in there and say that, and this is about film criticism, because I'm a movie nut and I look at IMD, Internet Movie Database, quite a lot, and anybody can put up anything there. And I do sometimes when the first, you know, the top review is like, gee, I really enjoyed this and mm, made me feel this or that. I don't object to it being there, but it's not what I want. I want somebody who ideally will write well and will inform me rather than just about I liked it. And but, you know, I know we're not really talking about that, but that's sort of, you know, the acceptable downside of everybody has an opinion now. But I interrupted you and I'm sorry, Isaac, go ahead. No, not at all. Um, and I think what goes alongside that comment is I think the level of expectation of the audience, because every time we ask audience members for feedback, there is always a nervousness of oh, can I say this? Am I allowed to? And I think the more and more yeah. they're being platformed, the more, you know, people we all exist in the same society. Everyone has a level of elaborate opinion. And I think given that space allows both the audience to have intricate and interesting and cultural or just different perspectives of the work, as well as 
writers with the technique or professional view of the work and I think those two do exist and they always have done pretty much just like you've mentioned in the IMDB I tend to look at the top critics I read their work and then I read the audience critic because all of them have different perspectives mm. and I think the multiplicity of voices is what we're probably going to be seeing a lot more in dance criticism yeah. rather than one individual be given that platform. I find this so interesting and I was wondering when you were talking about that then and picking up on something both of you have said earlier which is about knowledge how does that or does that block any audience feedback and I'm talking from a personal perspective here where I've often brought a really good friend of mine along to dance often contemporary dance and she'll say what's that about and I'll say I don't know (laughs) And, and she'll say is it good and you're like whatever you think you know but knowing that you have that permission to go I'm going to view this as if I went into an art gallery and you might not go into an art gallery and think I've got to really understand this before I give an opinion I might just say I really like that piece of art or I don't but we sometimes feel that we have to have more knowledge now I completely understand your point about critics needing that knowledge because you're about to put published words down on a page but I just wondered whether knowledge was a thing that was scaring audience with their feedback or whether in some ways it's about how we unlock them to say exactly what they feel and validate it that what you feel is the truth it's what that feels like to you can I jump in (laughs) because I'm excited by this Uh, so it's about (laughs) I think partly about welcoming people in inviting them it's like that La Robot experience or I went for several years to a little dance festival in rural Finland in a place called Puhajarvi, where they have three roundabouts and that's the town. But after every show and, and Finnish people can be quite reluctant to get going, you know, they're quite shy in many ways, quite reserved. But the person that would invariably be turned to first in feedback sessions was the local pig farmer. And it was just delightful because he had no knowledge. I mean, the only knowledge he was acquiring was coming to the festival every year. Otherwise, he had no context beyond Puhayarvi in the area. And I loved that. Also, for a while when I was writing for Dance Europe, I would take, first it was celebrities who were from other fields, Alexi Sale, Susanna York, blah, 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 to um, Michael Nyman to see dance performances. And I know Michael Nyman has worked in dance, but he's you know known as a composer. But then Emma Manning, the editor, opened it up based on a conversation she had with a taxi driver somewhere. So I took a funeral director, I took my accountant, and it's fascinating to me to get their reactions to work. And I think it needs a little bit of care or tenderness to bring that out. So I guess what I wonder, what I get excited about, since you've posed this question, Melanie, is how do we make that warm, welcoming, inviting place where people feel comfortable and are gathering their education as they go along, which is how I felt I've been doing this anyway for 44 years. You know, I'm learning all the time. And how do we allow people to not worry about what language they use or knowing the correct terms and blah, blah, and just feel okay about saying what arose inside them? That would be the ideal. Yeah, which might take us to the place that you were talking about, Isaac, of that multiplicity of voices and bringing that audience in amongst the written word, amongst the knowledgeable critics. Yeah, absolutely. As part of a 365, I've got Microsoft Teams in the brain, <laughs> 360 degree view of what a work might yeah, look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what quite clearly was said there is the expectation is different on the audience than the critic. So the critic will need that knowledge, will need to know how to write it without relinquishing their responsibility, etc, etc. But with the audience, I think being allowed to offer their opinion would be great because everyone comes from different backgrounds. You might have, I don't know, you make a work and everyone comes with their own perspectives of their own biases, not necessarily in a bad way, but a care worker watching your work will have an interesting interpretation you know, the list goes on, but I think allowing their histories and their biases to come to play 
rather than and I think this is a problem we and I'm going to say we collectively in the dance world have which is quite narcissistic is everyone who watches dance work needs to know about dance and everyone who communicates it needs to know and I think there is a quiet expectation that's been built that's probably why even audiences themselves would think am, am I allowed to say it? is it good is it bad I don't know is it good is it bad my husband asked me that all the exactly time. and it's on us to break those expectations because once they are allowed to open up and speak their thoughts everyone has a level of intricate thoughts and perspectives that will enrich that experience that conversation that work in return and I think again audience to artist artist to audience keeping that cycle going is really important to mm. how dance criticism in the future will look mm. I've done quite a number of post-show talks in, in my time and uh... Uh, one of the things I tend to ask, especially if audience questions dry up a little bit, I'll turn to the artist and say, what do you want to know? What would be important just to keep the dialogue going? And if it's a little dry, if they're a little reluctant and uncomfortable out there, the public, then let's have the artist say what they might need. You know, it's, it goes back to that need-want triangle thing. Doesn't it? It goes back to that permission thing. And there's something quite powerful about that artist opening up and saying, I want to know whether that bit works because they've asked you. And then somebody goes, actually, you know what? I don't know if it does. And then like, right, okay, how can I make... Because they've opened it up. Whereas if somebody just went, you know what? I think that bit doesn't work. <laughs> you know, that's quite hard to take, isn't it? I think that question that you might be asking the artist in that post talk or whatever is a really nice question to do that thing that we're saying about opening up, empowering. And with that, we have talked about this all the way through and it was natural that it would happen. But this lack of diverse voices in the industry is something that is recurring and coming to the fore and coming to our awareness late, I should say. And there's the new code of conduct that Equity have penned and the stage recently, I think it was in April, did a guest edited edition with Emmanuel Kojo and Naomi Obeng. And that was really interesting. There's some really interesting articles in there and I just wondered what the two of you think about how we go about diversifying the voices in the world of journalism particularly given how fast that paid work is reducing and Donald you've alluded to this but it does feel that the numbers of pages in newspapers devoted to any kind of performance or culture critique are reducing and big things like londondance.com have disappeared and so it all sort of feels like it's being forced into those social media places or unfunded and then critics are doing this work for free so it's a big issue to unpick I think but what are your feelings about how we go about doing that? Well, I think some of it's down to publications. It's down to editors making choices because, you know, I don't make those choices, for instance, at the Times. I'm simply asked, I can submit suggestions for things I might want to review, yes, no. And then I'm asked, are you free and available? But I don't do any of the hiring or any of that stuff. But I think, well, of course, I know some younger critics and I've mentored some critics and been invited to talk about criticism in that mentoring way. But how do we open up the doors? How do we continue to welcome in and invite all kinds of people and from all sorts of different backgrounds and perspectives and ethnicities and blah, 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 blah. Maybe it's a person by person thing, along with some insistence from the hierarchies that they don't be quite so damn hierarchical anymore. So I don't really have an answer to that except those suggestions. Isaac, what about you? Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I think I would say there is a approach, for example, how you kept mentioning to the artistic director about this person's work, the same approach can be had in having thought to, you know, yes, I can do this, but you probably want this person because we can all acknowledge that there is an issue that is still being perpetrated if the cycle isn't broken. I think there's a level of responsibility on the editors and the publications absolutely in having a wider look 
whether that's down to research or time, I'm not sure, but I think the want to look for different people needs to exist a lot more. And I think those who are already hired also have responsibility to push. Of course, you know, if you're offered money, are you going to say no? <laughs> but sometimes I think having that responsibility and thinking, probably not this one, and that's fine, especially if you have your own personal interest and maybe it's someone you mentored done all that you, as you suggested this person would really do well with this gig for example and I'm sure that thinking will, will go a long way but alongside that I think we also need to think about once we've found these people what are the infrastructures were around them to maintain and I think what is also being ignored that there are loads of different types of writers journalists out there from different backgrounds ethnicities etc who might have a short-term gig and then fall through the cracks and they disappear because the infrastructure isn't there to keep them in a momentum to reach higher and higher peaks of their roles. And I think we're still thinking on a short-term basis, you know, once that person is hired, great, we have someone and they're ethnically diverse or their gender is diverse or disability, etc. But, you know, how do we maintain them in that role long-term? Because we want them to have great careers like yourself Donald and like other writers because we see you in these roles and think hey you know we aspire to that as well but how do we maintain that momentum and I think that's something to think about because where diversity hits a hurdle is that short-term thinking let's just get everyone in the door and we'll be great but you know once everyone's in the door you're competing for the same gigs you're competing for the same jobs you're competing for the same fee so how do you then restructure that infrastructure to serve as many people as possible and it's not naive or optimistic because I I think you can serve a lot of people not everyone it's impossible but you can try and I think the trying will also help in seeing that there is a want to change things and there is a want to make things better that's where I see this conversation going in my opinion I hope they're listening <laughs> and I think it's great that we are listening Isaac that Donald myself you are listening to this because I always try and end these conversations on what could Greenwich Dance do because this is all about hearing from artists and I think some of the things you've said there are really interesting about not just getting someone in the door but about how you then develop and build those opportunities and that continuity of that development but there is something about keeping that door open isn't there it's often said in terms of women and the glass ceiling smashing that glass ceiling or wedging the door open to leave it open for the person coming up behind and we've all got to do that better maybe we should take it off the hinges <laughs> take it off the hinges take the door off the hinges get everybody in actually you know what i was about to say it needs much more thought but i don't think it does i think we've all been doing too much thinking it's about doing now yeah. it's about just getting out there more action. And getting, Absolutely. getting stuff done so you've given me so much of your time and as ever there's always so much more that i want to ask but just to finish off going back in a circle to your dual position of being artists of being published journalists and writers and knowing how huge the responsibility is but also how vulnerable an artist might feel I wondered whether you had any tips about how to deal with feedback and reactions to work be that good or bad and I did wonder whether the two of you read your good reviews as well as your bad reviews your nauseating genius Donald <laughs> I love the fact that you slammed those together and that's what you call yourself but any tips out there for vulnerable artists thinking about the next time they have to read something about themselves in print uh, I think in some ways one choice would be to take it on the chin another would be to try and initiate some kind of communication with the person whose opinion you felt was 
you know, whatever, whether it was incorrect or inaccurate or what kind of reaction it triggered in you. Small example, Wayne McGregor, I wrote a review for Dance Europe years ago and Wayne McGregor, and I'm pleased that he felt comfortable enough to do this. He sent me a little email that said, now, now, Donald, I hope you will return to more responsible criticism. And I didn't know what that was about. I'm not sure that I wrote him back right away. I saw him several weeks or months or whenever later. And I said, Wayne, you wrote me this really odd thing. And I wasn't sure how to respond to it. What was that about? And it was a review that I'd done of Northern Contemporary Dance School's performance of one of his works that was brought in to their rep. And I reread it just to make sure that I hadn't done anything that was like dreadful. And I'd said that his work is this, that, and blah, 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 very challenging. You need to have a lot of skills. And that I felt some of the young dancers in this company were not up to par. They didn't quite meet those skills. And he hadn't even remembered writing the email. And I said, oh, well, then why did you write it? And he said, oh, you know, I guess I was just feeling loyal toward the dancers or something like that. He was really kind of casual about it. But I guess what I took away from that was that I was glad that he at least reached out to me to say something. Because yeah. as you said, Isaac, it's the dialogue. It's the dialogue. Absolutely. I always want the dialogue. So that's an example of something that, you know, this sounds very conflict resolution, but can we talk about our differences and not get all emotional and maybe pick them apart and perhaps be persuaded on some level or other to look at things from a different angle rather than our own possibly rigid angle? I don't know. That's very interesting, especially if you take that on both sides. So might the writer then go, actually, you're right. Maybe I'd review that. Or maybe the artist would go, ah, oh, okay. So that's how that looks to you. Right. I need to take that away. But I can get it wrong, you know, whatever that may be. It's not, not that it's about right or wrong, but I know sometimes I'll say, did I pile too much praise on that? Or did I not go in depth enough because I didn't have enough room? Or was I maybe a little too harsh there, you know, because yeah. I'm just a person trying to do my best. Yeah. yeah. And I don't always get it as right as I could be. Yeah. And to echo that, I think the responsibility and humility and then accepting and admitting when you're the one who may have taken it or whatever the outcome of that conversation or that review, etc., might be and work on that. Yeah. Whether it's amendments or then having that dialogue to elaborate. And I think elaboration does help. And when there is, you know, differences, you just acknowledge that and just move forward. I would also add in terms of conversation and dialogue, yes, reaching out is important. But I think what I would offer as advice is having your own support network that you trust that will filter that information and give it to you in the way that it needs to be not necessarily to sugarcoat it i think it's important when something is negative receive it but you might receive that critique and think oh my work is terrible i'm never going to do anything but if you have a support system around you that can filter that and go oh it's not about the work it's about the attempt and you just have to try in a different way and the same can be said about the good review don't let it get to your head <laughs> you still have a lot more work to do or yes this is actually really good you're in a good place we talked before about pr being a line of defense and i think sometimes we do need filters from different people that we trust to enable us to keep making the work as it needs to be. It's also good to have the dialogue of any kind, whether it's because something possibly construed as negative was said. You know, I've championed people. I championed Kathy Marsa with David Nixon. I, and I like that. That's one of the reasons I keep on doing this. I want to find beautiful, gifted people and shout out that they exist and that they are people with potential. And it's also good for the industry. And I'd like to think that that kind of thinking will generate good ripples 
I don't necessarily need anything in return. It's a way of giving back to an industry and to a culture that I believe in, in all its multiplicity and diversity and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I kind of want to bang the drum for creative expression always. And, you know, my particular vibe right now, my niche is, you know, an old guy. I'm flying the flag of gray power and all that can mean now. And I don't want limitations or barriers put up to me because I happen to be a certain age or whatnot. So, you know, trying to take the hinges off that door. No, the door off the hinges. Sorry. We'll get the hinges off as well, because that would mess with my OCD if we just had a door with hinges hanging about. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you both. That has been such an exciting conversation and a thought-provoking one, but it feels like a really good place to stop. So if you would like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today, search for Talking Moves wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. And for more information about Isaac and Donald, head on over to GreenwichDance.org.uk. And do remember, if you know someone you think we should talk to or have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please tweet us at Greenwich Dance. But for today, that's it from us. Join us next time for more Talking Moves. Thank you both so much. We managed to override (laughs) any busting in of a six-year-old with a J2O. I really appreciate your honesty and openness. It's been a really interesting conversation. Likewise. And Isaac, thank you for uh, Family Honor. I saw it again. Oh, right, yes. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Cool. Uh, I wasn't in that one, though. I- I've left the company. So, yeah, it's a great work. <laughs>